0: 16 25 to 35 we read this about midnight paul and silas were praying and singing hymns to god and the other prisoners were listening to them suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken at once all the prison doors flew open everyone's chains came loose And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his, all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his entire household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Despite, despite their current position, Paul and Silas never forgot how to sing. Now, they had every reason to be frustrated. A few weeks earlier, Paul received a vision of a man from Macedonia, begging them to come west and help those who lived in Roman cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and eventually places like Greece and Athens. After initial success with an influential woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, uh, Paul and his new partner Silas healed a young slave girl possessed by a demon. Now, that seems like a good thing, but while freeing her from spiritual enslavement should have been a joyous occasion, Luke tells us this girl had also been used by the people who owned her to make a great deal of money by fortune-telling. When the Spirit left her, their opportunity to make money evaporated. So for them, the salvation that Jesus brought was not good news of great joy. It was this unsettling move into the unknown, a signal that their world might actually change in ways they didn't Desire or foresee. That is what Paul and Silas brought to those particular slave owners. Enraged, they dragged Paul and Silas to the crowded Central Market and accused them of upsetting the city by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. Although being Roman citizens afforded Paul and Silas an actual trial, the mob convinced local officials to punish these foreign Jewish travelers right away. They didn't belong here. They were teaching things that nobody liked. Uh, So the officials ordered them to be flogged and thrown in prison. Remember, back then, being flogged was an intentionally violent punishment reserved for rebellious slaves, the worst of the worst of Roman society. It was designed not only to harm the guilty, but serve as a warning to anybody thinking of doing something similar. Often those being flogged died during or soon after from blood loss or their bodies shutting down from such intense abuse. By the time that Paul made it to Rome near the end of his life, He had been flogged five times by Jewish leaders and three times by Roman authorities. This is the first time uh, by Roman authorities. And Luke tells us that this abuse was particularly severe. It was harsh. Immediately after, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. Not exactly a healthy place to recover from your injuries, especially back then. At the time, prisons were places of inhumane horror where people were forgotten and often just disappeared. Anybody in prison must have done something to deserve being there, at least that's how the thought went. And that justified every ounce of mistreatment or scorn or contempt or negligence the officials or guards might provide or not provide. Even worse for Paul and Silas, the officials instructed the jailer to keep a careful watch on them, which meant they had their feet shackled chained, and in a cell in the center of the jail. They were the most dangerous people in the jail, uh, according to the officials. In prison, Paul and Silas could have questioned why they had been sent this direction. Why did they receive a vision to go this way? Why, was, why did they have an encounter with this slave girl? Would it would be human to respond with frustration, with anger or despair. But as the night wore on, they began to pray and then sing hymns to God. Rather than focus on their dire surroundings, they looked to the goodness of Jesus and remembered that nothing could remove them from the hands of their Savior. Held in place by chains, Paul and Silas recognized the deeper reality of their situation. In God's kingdom, they were still very much free. They carried with them, in fact, a promise of freedom far more comprehensive than anything the Roman officials would ever be able to offer. They had followed the God of all creation to this city. They had proclaimed salvation to a girl enslaved by a demon, but the Holy Spirit moving within and through them had much more to accomplish." Paul and Silas understood the context of their situation better than anybody else, including the people who had put them in jail, and definitely more uh, than the jailer himself. And so instead of despairing, they waited for God to move. Perhaps then the series of miracles that occur next might not have been that much of a surprise, at least to the two people sitting in the middle of the jail in chains. For them, the unexpected movement of God into their world was just another moment that God would show both his power and grace to a broken world. We see three miracles happen in this short uh, story. The first miracle, of course, is the earthquake that shakes loose the chains of everyone in the jail and opens every door. Now, the supernatural movement of the natural world almost always signified God's arrival throughout the Old Testament, but also the pagan religions of the time. Natural disasters were inevitably tied to something happening on a spiritual level. But here, it's even more explicit. Here, like communion or baptism, this miracle serves as an outward sign of an invisible spiritual reality. There can be no greater representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ than a prison suddenly giving up the people it had previously enslaved. The prisoners who were there did not uh, not necessarily deserve to be set free. They could not have been set free without God's intercession, and they were not expecting freedom to arrive at all. Nobody went to sleep that night thinking, "Ah, yes, I'm going to be free at some point. I'm going to be able to walk out of this jail. And this first miracle, the kingdom of God, seems to nudge its way into a dark and dim reality, declaring that Jesus is Lord of all and has come to save. The second miracle occurs then when the prisoners remain in their cells. Every person in that jail could have fled. But every prisoner stayed put. Some scholars believe that Paul convinced everybody to stay in the moments after the earthquake. That might be the case, but it appears appears the Spirit had been working in their hearts uh, for a little while, at least since Paul and Silas had begun to pray and sing. Notice that Luke tells us the other prisoners were listening to them. In the Jewish tradition, listening is much more than hearing the words of another person. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says that God's command to listen doesn't mean letting the sound waves enter your ears. Rather, the Hebrew word for listen means letting the words sink in, provide understanding, and then generate a response. Even more interesting is the word used here in the Greek is used only once in the entire New Testament, and that's here. And it can be actually uh, more accurately translated as listened with great intent, listening with intensity, echoing the Jewish understanding of not just hearing, but letting what you hear sink into your soul. The prisoner's had been listening to prayers and songs about how God saves and rescues, when all of a sudden God broke into their world to save and rescue them. The third miracle, uh, however, deals not with the prisoners, but the jailer. In that society, a complete jailbreak would result not just in him losing his job, but his life. In Roman society, a complete jailbreak, uh, Roman law at the time decre- decreed that any guard who lost a prisoner would receive the punishment that that escaped prisoner would have received. So the jailer's extreme reaction, extreme response of suicide, likely meant there were men sentenced to die in the prison. The jail, uh, rather than face the shame of, or fail, of failure and endure a public execution, the jailer decides to kill himself. In Roman society, that is the more honorable option than, than waiting to be judged by the people in charge of him. We discover later this jailer has a family, so the prospect of failing them would have weighed on his mind as well. In this moment, however, the jailer experiences not condemnation, but mercy, not death, but life. He had expected the prisoners to escape, but by God's grace, they stayed so he might be rescued. Every prisoner had remained in their cell. And the ones who he, told, who he was told to watch with extra caution, the ones the officials had said, these guys are dangerous, They tell him not to harm himself, for everybody's still there. Overcome, the jailer comes to Paul and Silas, trembling with a question we all must ask as well. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in this exchange, Paul and Silas and the jailer switch roles. Imprisoned, Paul has the power to set free, and the jailer is the one who is seeking freedom. Bible teacher N.T. Wright suggests the jailer asked this question from a much more personal position and one we understand all too well. He writes, It was midnight. There had been an earthquake. The prison he was in charge of had burst open. He was going to be held responsible for escaped prisoners, which meant torture and death. He was at the point of committing suicide Jesus often speaks of someone being saved as being healed or rescued or delivered from whatever problem, be it sickness, financial disaster, personal catastrophe, or anything else that might be threatening. The jailer doesn't necessarily ask Paul and Silas about the mechanics of salvation, but how they might be able to help him in that moment. Less, how can I go to heaven and more? Gentlemen, will you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? How can I get out of this mess? Of course, the question has a deeper meaning, which is why so many English translations translate it. What can I do to be saved? As believers, though, we understand the entire world is in a mess the entire mess that we find our world in, from our own human rebellion and our tendency toward idolatry, the corruption of human life and relationships, the corruption of systems created by flawed humanity, our history that is full of wars and misunderstandings, the horror of abuse and indifference, the careless attitudes of people's focused solely on themselves and never others, right through to the messy situations that we find ourselves in, the mess that we look around and see the world is in right now when we turn on the news or look at what's happening on the internet, the never-ending stream of chaos and brokenness, all of that mess flows from the barrier created by sin between ourselves and our God. When the jailer asks, how can I get out of this mess, or what can I do to be saved, Paul understands the jailer is not just asking for help, but the salvation that can only be found in Jesus. This question, which is the same question uh, uh, asked earlier by the demon-possessed girl, is something every member of humanity asks almost all the time. And we have to ask living in such a broken world. For the jailer, Paul and Silas seem to have an answer that others don't. They know the way to a kind of salvation, a redemption, a restoration that reaches beyond this world into the supernatural. There had been an earthquake and all of the prisoners had stayed put. That wasn't usual. That's why believe in the Lord Jesus is always the answer to the question of how to be rescued at whatever level and whatever sense. Charles uh, Spurgeon preached a sermon once in which he referred to the cities of refuge that Yahweh sets up in Exodus twenty-one, fourteen. When the Israelites conquered Canaan, they were told to establish uh, these things called cities of refuge to which a person who had accidentally killed somebody could run to And be safe. These cities provided sanctuary, salvation to people who would otherwise be subject to the law of the land, which was usually an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, or even worse, revenge on the part of relatives of the person who had been killed. For these cities to work as intended, however, the way to get to them needed to remain clear and unobstructed. The roads leading to these cities had to be easy to get to. If stones fell into those roads, they were to be removed. If bridges collapsed, they had to be rebuilt as soon as possible. They were also required to set up uh, signs to mark the way, to point in the right direction. So someone who was on the run, pursued by somebody wanting vengeance or a mob or even soldiers from some distant kingdom, might make it to that city safely. Spurgeon said that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing here. He was making the way to deliverance, to salvation clear to the jailer. Perhaps even more miraculous for the jailer, however, was that he didn't have to run to any city of refuge. He didn't have to pack up his family and seek sanctuary because the one who rescues had already arrived into the middle of his jail. God the Father hadn't just invited the jailer into the kingdom and told him what he had to do in order to get there. He didn't tell the jailer, I will love you if you become a Jewish follower and you attend temple or if you do all of these external rules. No, he had sent his own son to bring this jailer and his entire family Home. He had sent his own son to speak words of rescue and salvation to every prisoner in that jail. The mess that the jailer had found himself in, not just the alarming nature of the earthquake and the breakout and the potential prison break, but human existence itself. The mess of being alive, of moving in this broken world had been directly addressed and relieved by the Savior. In fact, an entirely new way of life, a new world, was waiting on the horizon. That was what Paul and Silas knew. The Savior was just beginning to build a brand new kingdom to restore everything that humanity had ever lost He was coming to make all things new. Having heard the promise of the gospel, the jailer converts, accepting Jesus as his Lord. He tends to the wounds of Paul and Silas, and then he has his entire family baptized. After that, because he was so filled with joy, the jailer brings them out of the prison into his own home for a feast in the middle of the night. How amazing is that? This dinner reflects the unique spiritual position of every believer still struggling with this broken world. See, the children of God aren't usually exempt from suffering just because we believe in Jesus. Hard things still happen to even the most faithful. But at the same time, Believers also recognize that Jesus has already defeated sin and evil and death, and that he is Lord. We are enabled to carry joy even when sorrows crash upon us because we know that Jesus is in control. Paul later writes uh, in Second Corinthians 4 that we have this treasure and jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of, belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but never forsaken, struck down, but never destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. Despite the mess this world is in, no matter the mess our lives might be in today, Whatever mess we might be struggling with, Jesus has stepped into our world, our mess, to rescue us. And the same Jesus that did that, the same Jesus that died for us, the same Jesus that rose for us, reigns in power for us now. Just around the corner, Jesus tells us that our God will soon make, and in fact is currently making, everything new. N.T. Wright says it like this, This nighttime feast in the jailer's house sets the pattern for the bizarre celebration of God's kingdom from that day up to this one. And Jesus, the world is finally turning the right way up at last. And what better way of showing it than a Roman jailer throwing a midnight party for two battered but rejoicing heralds of the new king? Church, we don't pray thy kingdom come in vain. We pray thy kingdom come with joyful confidence, operating amongst the brokenness, broken themselves, Paul and Silas sang and they prayed in chains because they understood that Jesus was not only with them, but would rescue them one way or another. Jesus would uh, use either their suffering and their escape or their deaths to declare the same thing, the coming transformation of the universe, to show the world that Jesus was Lord of creation, the author of salvation, and moving even now to remake his people. Elizabeth Elliot, a uh, missionary, wrote centuries later about following Jesus. It is, not his, it is his song, not mine, that I'm here to sing. It's his will, not mine, that I'm here to do. Let me focus my vision unwaveringly on him who alone knows the complete score. And like David sang, in the night his song shall be with me. Brothers and sisters, we are called and empowered to sing. To rejoice even amongst the brokenness. We do this because Jesus has come. No matter what happens to us, no matter what happens around us, our joy still moves with power inside of us because Jesus has come and he is coming still. So remember this. Remember this. Find your strength and rejoice. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.